Yeah, we are live. We are live. Welcome, okay. Tracy. Thank you. Yeah, so immediately when I saw your uh, your worksheet, it was like, oh, this is what I need because <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing or looking at. Um, but it was interesting because like our since we're so small, it's so volatile that mm -hmm. it's like I think we'll have to look at it over a period of time and right. And right. I'll have to reread the book, like you said, and yep. in the book. So. Yes, it's a it's a practice. It's a muscle. Right. So the more you use it, the the better you get at it, and the easier it becomes. And then the less you you use it, the more you have to keep going back to the book and reminding yourself. And yeah. right. And I yeah. didn't mention uh, just hold keep yeah pull the mic like about a fist distance away, and you can okay. just talk like right over it. Over it. Okay. Yeah. Second. Okay. Perfect. Yay. Um. Yeah. I. I to me, it's like learning anything new, I guess. But to me, it's like so foreign. It's like, I have no idea what I'm looking at and no idea what it means, right? I see these numbers and like profit, okay. Like, but there's yeah. so many other, like, you know, profit makes sense mm -hmm. and like different types of profit, but there's so many other numbers that. Yes, yes. That, well, the thing that business people, you know, entrepreneurs, business owners, and just anyone who's thinking about a business is you think about the top line, which is revenue. And then you want to skip to the bottom line, which is profit. So what you make and right. what you keep. Right. Right. But, um, the problem is that there's a, there's a couple other levels in there that you want to optimize right. in order to make more money, you know, and keep more money. And if you, if you only focus on revenue and, and net profit, uh, what you could end up doing is growing, growing, growing revenue and, and never really making more money. You're just doing more work, right, right? Right. So you have to really optimize your, your cost of goods and all your direct expenses that go along with the work and then also optimize the operating expenses. And when you start to think of them in two different categories, you can be strategic and surgical in two different ways. And it right. actually will lead you to, you know, starting with more money. Uh, to pay the rest of the operations, right? Like if you can minimize the amount of cost it takes to do the work, right? Or or either by being as efficient as possible mm -hmm. or by raising prices so that there's more margin there, then you have more left over to operate the company. You know, you have more to pay for insurance and uh, bookkeeping and, you know, utilities and you know, all the other things that right. you just kind of have to, you know, you have to, you can't get away without having right sure um so you have to think about it in two ways and then the other gotcha that people are always sad to learn is that profit doesn't equal cash mm. and it's a very two very different things you know i challenge anybody to look at their income statement and look at their profit and then go match that number that amount of dollars to anywhere in your bank account like right. it's never going to be the same amount right, right? there's never going to be the same amount of profit as there is cash and that's because there's there's two drivers of cash on the income statement, but there's four drivers of cash on the balance sheet. And, you know, I like to call the book calls the balance sheet, the Rodney Dangerfield of incomes of financial statements, because it gets no respect. Mm. You know, we don't even look at it. We don't even really know what it's there for. It seems like not a very interesting thing. It tells us what we already know, but really what's going on there is a whole nother story that's driving how much cash you have. Right. So that's the missing piece that kind of starts to put the puzzle together. And now when you understand those, all the two drivers of cash flow on the income statement and the four drivers of cash on the balance sheet, then you're like, now I understand how profits and cash are related. Right. Which is there is no direct relationship and you have to take into account your assets and your liabilities. Right. So, yeah. Because you might be making a profit, but end up your balance sheet might not look good and then you end up in a bad situation 
Yeah. Even though if you just look at profit, yes. you're profiting, right? You could have a lot of profit and no cash because you invested your cash in assets, right? You might be stocking up on inventory that you haven't yet sold, right? Right. So you might've taken all that money that you made in profit and turned it right back around to buy the widgets that you sell, right? right? So you have no cash, yep. but you had a lot of profit. So then the business owners are like, well, we had a great month. You know, we sold $100,000 in revenue. And they forget that they took that $100,000 of revenue and bought $100,000 worth of widgets. Mm. And so now they have no cash, <laughs> right. but they have a lot of widgets, right. you know? And so, but they're like, but we made all this profit. It's so it's here that we made a profit. And that's because you wouldn't classify that purchase of widgets as an expense. It's classified as an asset on the balance sheet. Mm. So in that way, the income statement isn't giving you that full picture, right? right? You have to know what your balance sheet's doing too. Right. So yeah, it's a real, if we only, so I call the income statement, the Beyonce of financial statements because everyone knows and loves it mm. and they look at it and it gets all the attention, you know, you can go anywhere and someone you know knows who Beyonce is. And then the statement of cash flows is the Bobby Fisher. It's the missing <laughs> reclusive chess icon that no one even knows where that is, right? <laughs> I was going to have to ask who that is, but yeah, so yeah thank like you for Bobby explaining. Fisher, there's a really great Saturday Night Live skit that's like, where is Bobby Fisher? I don't know. I don't know. And it's like kind of funny because uh, it's just a chess player, right? But he is, he's a, no one knows where he is right now. He mm. won all these amazing chess matches and tournaments and stuff. So nice. that's your statement of cash flow Right? is no one really knows where it is or how to calculate it. And, um, it, yet it's the most important thing because in a business, cash is king, right? You pay your bills with cash, you pay, pay your employees with cash, and you pay your debts with cash. So you don't pay it with profit. You don't pay it with that $100,000 of profit because that that was the profit. You you have to use cash, right? right. We, knew, we know that we took that $100,000 and bought widgets with it. Right. So we have to understand like that we actually don't have any cash right now. And we would have maybe only purchased $75,000 of widgets if we had seen what that would do to our cash position. Right. right. So, and it's, it's weird to me that it's not more automated that it's so manual for a given business to understand, but I think it's make it's, you have to make it more automated for a specific business maybe because these things have like, it's so different for each business that you have to, you have to do the work for that business. It's yeah. not just, run the numbers on, on QuickBooks and, and something comes out that tells you what to do. Right. It's well, yeah. I mean, every business is unique, right. And we all get into business because we have some unique skill or talent or trade or craft or product. Right. And we, we get pretty far on our intuition and our skill that we kind of just you know, use common sense. Right. And then you, you can get to a certain point and then it starts to run out a little bit because there's more working parts in your business. Right. And so maybe, maybe it was really obvious to you on day one of the lemonade stand that if you sell this much lemonade, it costs this much, but then you scale, you open up a second location or you, we start to sell lemonade and cookies, you know, and things start to get a little more complex. And that's when you have to increase your financial acumen. And, you know, we call it finance as a second language. Right. You know, we all, it's the language of business. And so whether you were dreaming of becoming bilingual when you started your business or not, at some point in time, most business owners need to become bilingual, you know, and, and bring on that financial knowledge. And, uh, you know, the book 
60 Minute CFO talks you through the very like most one size fits all ratios for those things, right? Mm. These will apply to every business there is. Some of the ratios will be way more important than others depending on what type of business you're in. Right. But if you master those, just like in any other language, then you can say, well, I've mastered conversational Spanish, but I'm going to be a nurse. So I need to learn medical Spanish, you know? And so like right. if you've, if you master some of the basics of business finance, but you have some specific things that are driving your business, like if your business is extremely driven by marketing, you know, you might bring on a few more ratios that help you understand how, how you understand your marketing expense and what the marketing return on investment is, you know, and those might be really key things to look at, um, based on what type of business you're in. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. And how did the, the book come about? So the book is the, I would say amalgamation of my dad's experience over the course of his career as a small business advisor. And he comes to finance via an, a BA and an MBA in finance, right? Mm. So he's got all the classical training and then he worked in banking and then he was in consulting and um, helped a lot of small businesses, right? Consulting and advising. And he saw enough of the divide between, like literally, you know, the tagline is bridging the gap between banker, CPA and business leader. So you're your gap is the distance between the way people learn finance in school and the way people learn finance on the street, right? Mm. You know, like just doing the day to day. There's right. like the boots on the ground, entrepreneurs out there who have figured it out the way they understand it. And then it's a completely different set of terms and thoughts and ways of looking at things from the school angle. And he, he was able to see how to get this information so it's understandable by people who didn't go to school for it. And he, you know, as you kind of do in your career, you get to a point where your, your knowledge crystallizes, you know, you, and you, and you move from like doing a lot of it to teaching it. Right. And he, and he did that, um, right as I was selling my second business and I was his basically like classic case of someone who didn't come into business with any finance training mm. and figured it out all on my own. And when I read his book and listened to him explain the concepts to me, he's always been my mentor, right? He's always been my person I bounce everything off of, my biggest cheerleader and my sounding board for everything. But he, I was like this, <laughs> I just learned everything that you have always known and been teaching. I just learned the hard way. You know, mm. partly probably through my own rebellious ways, you know, that the daughters do when they're right. going out on their own. Right. Um, and he's helped me a ton. But but the finance piece, um, it just I was probably definitely the classic seat of your pants entrepreneur. Like, I'll just figure out my own way, you know, and I can't tell you how many times I would have conversations with CPAs over the years who would tell me how my business is doing. And then I would ask a clarifying question because I didn't quite understand exactly what they were telling me. And they would give me an answer that was almost identical to their original explanation. Right. And I would go, Hmm, I still don't understand the answer to that. And maybe if I was brave, I would ask my question one more time, hoping to get it back in a way I'd understand it. And I wouldn't end up getting it. Right. Right. And I consider myself fairly 
intelligent, but it is so frustrating to, to sit in that seat and have someone who's, you know, telling you your tax bill and telling you, you know, how your business is doing and not fully understand the explanations or right. even the levers to pull right. if I wanted to make the changes. And, uh, anyway, it was through a pretty stark awakening that I had in my second business where I started to understand the real need to understand cash flow hmm. and understand the balance sheet. And my business partner and I figured it out, you know, on our own right. um, through just sheer determination and grit. Um, it wasn't easy. And it, I really didn't enjoy it, to be honest. <laughs> it was like pulling teeth. It was like, I, I need to get back to what I'm good at, right? The whole time I was like, I need to get off of this finance project and back to what I'm good at. But the problem was, is that our business wasn't going to succeed unless we figured it out. So right. I felt that pain and resistance, right. you know, that people feel, and it's a really horrible feeling, right? And long story short, long story long is that my dad came to me with his book and having, and I just lived through like all the experiences he was explaining and teaching. And I made a decision to not just help him. He was asking me to help him with the marketing and the sales and things that I've historically have experience in. And I said, I'm also going to come alongside as a teacher and a consultant for this because this is so needed. Mm. You know, I really just feel like this is the piece that um, I'm the most inspired to help business owners with right now. So it was that second, your learning in that second business that prepared you to help with the book? Yes. And then what role did you play in the book? Because he was already working on it. Yeah. So he is the primary author, right? He, it was his uh, pen to paper that started the book off. And what we did is um, together collectively uh, built out, you know, all the business around the book, essentially to market the book, um, you know, get it printed and sold and into people's hands. And, you you know, the, the classic book uh, launch scenario where you're asking people to write reviews and you're on, you know, podcasts and radio and interviews and things like that, um, and establish the book out there in the marketplace. And then, um, we started to build the business around the book, which is just 60 minutes CFO, the business, which is, um, we brought on the worksheets. So we have the Excel companions mm -hmm. that help you calculate all the numbers we're telling you to calculate. Right. And it's like this, you know, it's an incredible tool that takes you through income statement, balance sheet, cash flow, so that you can analyze historically, but then it also has a whole forecasting piece built in. So that was a really fun piece to add in. And then, um, you know, we built it out into an online course and collaborated with um, an animator and voiceover team to um, make it more of a, a visual aid, you know, for those people who aren't uh, book readers, you know, it, people ask me if we have an audible book and I'm like, you know, it really doesn't translate well. <laughs> you have to see the sure. visuals, yeah. you know, we're like talking about tabular data. It's really hard to explain to you what the income statement looks like right. in audible. But if you, if you need that, you can use the online course to bring it to life, right? right? That's like the tool for the audio and visual learners. And, um, and then we teach, I'll, I'll do one-on-one -on -one coaching or I'll take people through that course and book every so often in terms of like a live accountability, accountability driven, uh, course. Right. And so it's like a zoom companion to doing it on your, instead of doing it as a DIY. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's speaking engagements as well. So that's the, the, the piece. And then 
as we've been, the last three years were pretty wild. So we've been constantly updating the book, you know, to speak to like hundred year events, like pandemics and how to plan for those. And in doing so, uh, that is when I came on as a co-author just to, you know, continue to kind of put the, the seat of your pants entrepreneur spin on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Just to make sure it's really, you know, hopefully easy to understand for, for the non-financial business owners. Sure. So it's interesting that you said building the business around the book, because that's really what it is, right? You're not just doing this for fun. It's at the end of the day, it, it needs to be economically incentivizing, right? Right, right. right. Which it, it's just an interesting way to think about a book, but it makes total sense. Well, yeah, I mean, books typically um, exist, you know, many people, their books exist for many reasons, right? Um, and in this case, you know, I know my dad knew it needed to be out in the world, because when you have an idea that's like so crystallized and ready to be shared, a book is a great way to do it. It's a great vehicle mm -hmm. for that. Um, but the obvious next steps for that are, um, you know, people literally... Um, you know, the, the book is very well received, which is awesome. So it was just kind of a nice evolution to um, when people reach out and, and say, hey, can you help me? Or I have some questions, you know, to be able to um, to have something built out that is a vehicle for that. So Right. So is that what you're spending most of your time doing these days is like the the stuff around the book? Um, yeah, I would say so. My my world is 100 percent financial fluency. And um, I do it in two different ways. So it's about half and half, depending on the time of year. I guess it averages out to half and half. But I spend a lot of my time teaching and speaking for 60 Minute CFO. And then the rest of the time, I'm still doing financial fluency, but that's under the header of Starboard Collectives, mm. which is just a different uh, medium that to teach financial fluency. It's still based on 60 Minute CFO. But we gather uh, groups of CEOs or business owners and leaders um, from around the country that want to meet on a regular basis and really commit to being in community with each other as a peer peer to peer advisory group. But we also all sign you know confidentiality agreements and share financials, and then that piece is uh, the part that I present to them, you know, as a financial analysis. Right. And we go through everything that's, you know, we flex our muscles, right? right. Like we, um, we look at everybody and benchmark and do an analysis and talk through the ratios and keep ourselves fresh, you know, and current on that piece. Yeah, that seems pretty, pretty valuable to be in touch with other people in the same industry and learn what they're up to. It is. Yeah, it is. It's so like it's so powerful and right now we the industry that we work the most with is the moving and storage industry and i like to say you know between everyone here in the room we know everything there is to know about moving but no one person knows it all right so we that's the power of collectively sharing it is what you don't know this person probably knows and then when he doesn't know this person probably knows when she doesn't know this person knows we get it all out in the open we collectively improve Right. And then we can see the same thing on the financials and every, even though they're all moving businesses, there are still unique pieces to each business. There's geography and there's age and stage of business and there's business mix. And so you can see how, uh, they all operate a little bit differently. And then 
take, you know, share, like pull really great ideas from one guy who's doing a slightly different business mix than another person. Right. Um, so yeah, just tons of collaboration. And what kind of, what pieces of the moving and storage, like, like, uh, like what types of businesses specifically are you tending to work with? Are these like, like, uh, brokers or are these people that have storage places or what? No brokers. Um, but we are talking about, uh, everything. Most of these are family owned businesses that have been around for years and years and years and years. In fact, some of them are pushing like maybe a hundred plus years old and literally started with horse and wagon. Um, and they might've, you know, originally been delivering ice, you know, and, and there's some incredible history in the moving industry. Um, but no, it's the people that you would call if you were moving from Seattle to New York city, right? They're going to come. Oh, if I was moving my, my, my personal house. Yes. Oh, yes. okay. Like household I, goods, I household goods, movers. Um, a lot of them also do office and industrial moves. And so if you were, you know, Microsoft and you know, you need to move, uh, just like office spaces around your campus, you might have you know, engaged these movers on a retainer basis to be available to do all the moving that you need in any given day, week, month. Uh, there's also relocation movers. And so that would be like, again, Microsoft would say, you know, we're going to use you for all of our corporate relocations. Like this guy's coming in from Detroit. We got to move him into Seattle, you know, and you're our person of choice. Um, they also do a lot of storage. So if you're just like, I need to store some stuff for long-term, um, they have a lot of warehouse space. Uh, they might do self-storage, you know, so if you're like, I want access to a storage unit that I can come and go from, you know, as needed. Um, but yeah, those guys. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And so you, you said that the other thing that you're doing is a lot of speaking and teaching. Where are you speaking and teaching? Oh, so I currently like for, during the pandemic, I did a lot of speaking online. Uh, I've worked, I've spoken to a couple of moving centric groups. Um, and then I was in Orlando speaking to the American Trucking Associations Conference, for example, talking about 60 Minute CFO. I was just in Detroit two weeks ago speaking to the Small Giants community, which is actually a very, very cool book. And then a community has grown around that. Uh, the common the common theme within those companies are companies that have chosen to be great rather than big. Hmm. Um, and so I was talking to them about the importance of managed growth so that you don't grow broke. In right. other words, chasing revenue and then running out of cash right. um, by growing too fast. So that was in Detroit. And then I've, yeah, I've, I, I teach mostly on zoom and that's because we're using um, the book and then the online course and then that, those cohorts come together from across the country. So it's easiest just to meet on Zoom and do that there. Interesting. And so I, you gave me a little of the history of your kind of your, the different, you started with e-commerce. I was just curious to get the whole synopsis oh, of, of right. your trajectory. Right. So uh, definitely a serial entrepreneur and uh my first business was web development and it was service-based, right? So I didn't have to buy anything to sell anything because all I had to do was, I suppose, buy my computer and then uh, make an infinite number of websites. Um, so service-based. And you were on the, the business side of that. You weren't doing the the engineering, if I remember. Right. right. I have a, I had a business partner and she was our 
computer programmer, right. yeah, and database designer. And I, I do know how to program like front end programming, mm. but so that was definitely in the startup phase. You know, I spent a lot of time doing that, but then, uh, more of on the accounts and management and biz, de biz development side. Um, so I would be out gathering work and, you know, hunting and gathering and then bringing it back. And my partner would, uh, do a lot of the development. And we grew, so we had a team, you know, that would help us with that. And this is all pre, you know, uh, pre Wix and Squarespace and things like that. So we were building content management solutions and HTML email sending solutions and uh, kind of tended towards the more technical. We built our own shopping cart, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And that is what led us to our second business, which was unbeknownst to us, a pretty big pivot. We thought it wasn't going to be as big a pivot as it was, but it was an e-commerce website. And all we thought, well, we already know how to build the e-commerce website. Now all we need is something to sell. It's like famous last words. And so what we didn't realize is we were pivoting from services to products based, mm. right? And with that comes the balance sheet <laughs> that, you know, you have when you have a service-based businesses, but there's really nothing on there aside from like tables, desks, chairs, computers, right? and no debt, you know, other than the revolving credit card that you just pay off or whatever. And that's mostly from like cost of goods sold with products now exists, whereas with services, it's effectively zero. Yeah. Yeah. We just never had to <laughs> worry about that to the degree that you have to worry about it with inventory-based businesses with right. the cost of goods. And that is where, I mean, I have this like stark memory and we ended up selling the product, the, the product that we just needed to find, you know, ended up being retail jewelry mm. and it had a great margin and it was small and lightweight and easy to ship. So you're buying from distributors yeah, and, brands. Then, mm -hmm. and then direct to consumers. Yes. Yeah. So we were kind of like the Zappos of jewelry mm. and we would just pick um, brands and we didn't know anything about jewelry. We aren't especially stylish or anything. So we just would buy based off of um, what we saw was selling. Uh -huh. And we would look at Google Trends and we would use all of our little digital marketing tools that we knew how to use, which is honestly just like this huge um, shortcut for us. Like we were just way ahead um, of a lot of other jewelry vendors because we had this web development background. Right. And I remember the day that we chose to, um, well, I remember the day that we had chosen like a bunch of jewelry that was really selling well. And so what had happened is every time we would buy, every time we would sell something, we would buy two more of it, right? Cause it was a, approximately a, a two times markup. So if I sold something that was, and we had initially just put some money in, right? So I right. had initial amount of inventory and that I just kept doubling it with the profits, right? Yeah. And I had so much profit. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, what could, what could go wrong? And so we had, we had gotten the business to be pretty substantial. You know, we were like doing a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue. And with the markup being two times, we figured we should at least have at least a hundred thousand dollars of cash lying around. Right. And we just didn't, right? Like we'd look in the bank account, there'd be like almost nothing. And I remember, I mean, we're smart people. Business part, business people are smart people. And I remember to this day, my, my business partner just looking at me and we were in our little, um, actually we had converted our conference room from our web development company into our little warehouse. Mm. So we had all these little boxes of jewelry lined up and these little labels and the SKUs and everything. We had all this jewelry on this wall. And she's like, where's all the money? And I was like, I don't know. How are we ever going to get a 
good. Like, how are we ever going to like make any money? We've made money, but we don't have any money. And I finally turned my head and I was like, oh, there's the money. It's in <laughs> the jewelry. Yeah. And it's just funny because it just takes a minute for you to like put your head up, you know, right. and like look around literally right. at your jewelry and go, oh my God, that's where the money is. And we have to slow down. We can't put a hundred percent of the profits back into the jewelry if we ever really want to have any cash. Right. So it's funny. And I, I did tell that story when I was in Detroit two weeks ago about, we had to slow down, you know, we had to like very few entrepreneurs can grow as fast as they'd like to grow. Right. You know, entrepreneurs are pretty risk tolerant. Like we're all in all the time, right. yeah. but there is, there is a cost to that. It's right. That's not just the risk of failure, but you can actually throttle yourself out of money in other ways. Yeah. Right. yeah. You could just run straight out of money Yeah, and then you, and then you obviously take on a line of credit or some financing and you find other ways to get money. But with that comes interest expense, you know, and then that lowers your margins. And so now you're lowering your profitability and it can be a downward spiral and we, we call it growing broke, right. right? You just grew broke. You grew faster than you could. And so the, the reality is that no one can grow as fast as they want. And in order to avoid the situation that I found myself in, we had to get a hold of the, of what was happening and see where the money was going. And that's by taking a look at the balance sheet and monitoring how much do we have in inventory? How much did we sell? Are we going to replenish a hundred percent of what we sold or a different percentage of what we right. sold? Cause and we're not going to double it anymore. <laughs> can't keep doubling down <laughs> if we want to have any cash. So that was, it is so simple in hindsight and it was so painful in the moment because we were also hair on fire, right? Like you have an e-commerce store, you're constantly selling and constantly making decisions. That's a 24 hour a day business. And then we were also running our web development business still. Mm. And that was when it became clear that we needed to sell the web development business because um, we had too much going on. So that was the, that was the, that was the hard line is when we needed to, once we started making real money, but no cash, we, we were like, we got to figure this out. Then we started making cash and we started paying ourselves from the e-commerce business, right. which was great. Um, that worked and that worked and that worked and that worked. And it was a huge success. I mean, I will say that, you know, to this day, I, I, I will always remember the Tracy pre understanding cash flow and the Tracy post hmm. understanding cash flow and the Tracy prior to that having her conversations with her CPA and after that mm. it was different it was like i am now a partner in the finance of my business and i understand what we are doing i understand the consequences of my actions and our growth and i can be strategic with it now right I don't need you to tell me that I did well. And I don't need you to tell me that I didn't do well. I know what's going on in my business. It was super empowering. And if I hadn't had that experience, you know, I still don't know where I'd be with finance. I, it may not have ever clicked for me, but it was a painful enough point in time where, you know, you had to, you had to, you had to choose <laughs> to keep going. Right. Um, but then that business kind of started to run its course. We had a five-year head start. We were just launched 
on day one of the e-commerce gig. Mm. And we had so many tools. You were lo- what do you mean you were launched on we day one? We just had so much more knowledge than the average e-commerce business. Right. Having already done that work ourselves for all of our clients. So we knew all about search engine optimization and pay-per-click ads and email marketing and how to target people and like it's just smart ways to re you know we were doing retargeting and remarketing and all of the things. And what year did you start that business? Uh we started it in 2008. Oh wow. During the recession. Yes. That's way later than I would have thought would be the cutting edge of e-commerce but I guess I guess now that, yeah. You know, if you were doing pay-per-click ads in 2008, you were pretty darn ahead of the game. Hmm. People were still talking about, is it worth it? You know, how does it work? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's hard to wrap your head around how much the internet's changed in 15 years. Yeah, and Facebook barely had a platform for ads. And they, if you wanted to do remarketing ads, which is like all anyone does anymore, you had to outsource it to a third party who worked with Facebook on your behalf. What is remarketing ads? Remarketing is when you you go to like Vori and you look at a t-shirt and then that t-shirt follows you around the internet. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so Love that was that. like, yeah, that was like a super <laughs> new idea. Right. Really new idea. And Facebook didn't even have that built into their platform. And did that come around with like... You know, this word cookies gets thrown around. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it really means. Mm-hmm. Like, was there some change that enabled remarketing ads and following people, like tracking what they're up to? I guess, was that just search engines? Um, well, or were they always able to and they finally just leveraged it? Yeah, the cookies have always been there. Uh, and no one knew. That was one piece. Is you just, you, if you had to, you had to know they were there and clear your cookies if you didn't want to be tracked. Right. right? And, it was just a matter of people saying, well, we could do a little more with these cookies. So let's go ahead and use them cross-platform. And that was, so, so they created an ad network. So there were some things, and I, I'm not privy to this, and I'm probably speaking slightly out of turn, but ad networks started to co- come into play and people sharing that data. Mm, is, right, like yeah. a distributor or whatever, yeah. connector. Yeah, yeah. Huh. so Facebook really, you know, they are watching you in mm. all ways. Yeah. Yeah. And do you... This is a little off. The, I don't want to throw us too far off the course, but I'm curious if you do any, like what's your kind of cookie management or like your Internet, you know, interface. Do you do do much different than your average person, do you think, as far as like using VPNs or, or how you let the Internet or what information you choose to let the Internet know about you? I would say that knowing what I know about cookies I, uh, first of all, I always just accept them right? because really what's going on is most of the time you're just going to get, hopefully what's a more catered experience to you. Right. Um, when people use cookies for evil, well, that sucks, but I'm also just a little bit less, I'm just not a typically very paranoid person. The thing I am very religious about is my passwords and, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I use some passwords, best practices by using, you know, like a password keeper and mm-hmm. I um, keep those in a vault and that, those are cross device and they have a master password that, you know, only I know. And so I don't have them written down anywhere and things like that. And how do you feel about the Google password manager? Do you have? Uh, I don't use Google password manager. You mean like that's built into the it's, browser? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't use it. I was just curious yeah. if, you, if there's a reason or if you just didn't well, really look at it or. I guess I just, well, for one thing, I just became a user of, and it actually, I know an IT guy who would 
throw me under the bus for using LastPass, but it's something that I adopted in 2008, and I've just been using it ever since. Gotcha. So you were probably before Google had a password manager and it was using one. It was one. prior, yeah. So right. I've just been religious with that one ever since. Right. Um, but the other things that I'm more worried about are just overall cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And when I think about getting hacked or having, you know, your data held at ran for ransom or even just secure money transfers and wire transfers. And like, I will not wire money to anybody I don't know unless I basically get them on zoom and I can look in their eyes and they tell me their bank account and routing number. So I'm more on that side of things like cybersecurity and fraud than I am worried about cookies. Cause I with guess. wiring money, if you wire them money, they can. So there's a lot of wire fraud that's ha happening out there right now. Um, the pandemic actually brought a huge increase in that type of thing. And what's happening is um, if you have ransomware or any kind of malware on your computer, uh, if there's been any kind of breach in your email, uh, people or, or people will just try to spoof your email or spoof someone else's email. And a classic uh, example is the CEO of a company um, will write an email to the CFO and say, Hey, I'm on a conference call. Um, but this vendor just let me know that our, um, invoices past due. They're going to no longer service us. It's really urgent. Can you please wire them $80,000? Don't call me because I'm in a meeting right now. Right. And that was actually an email that came from outside the system. It's just spoofed. It's probably like one letter different than the CEO's email. Right. And then the CFO wires that money and wire transfers are not reversible. You can't do anything about it. It's just like gone. Right. right? And you did it. You like initiated right. the money. You like gave the money over. Right. So I'm like way more wary of that type of stuff. I gotcha. Yeah. 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 So I'm like, no, you're going to need to call me. You're going to need to look at my eyes. You're going to tell me that. Right. <laughs> That's kind of where I, I spend more of my time. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how with most things, paranoia is not, not necessary. It's just common sense and just take an extra 10 seconds to think, wait, is this real? Right. Why would the yeah, CEO text me a message, you know, email me a message that's like, don't call me. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, it's so interesting because, I mean, the internet is one of those, like, I think people, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on just progress in general, because people talk about this, like, incapacitating rate of progress that uh, society is, is going through. And I actually only see it in a few sectors. And I think the internet is one of them and digital technology. Um, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on just progress or, or the way people talk about progress in general? Well, I mean, what, what your question makes me think of is the AI mm -hmm. pieces that are rolling into our world Yeah, and progress for sure. AI is going to be a huge tool that we can all leverage, but I think with anything comes its risks as well. And it just requires us to be savvier consumers. Um, you know, being a parent of a, nine-year-old and a 13-year-old, I'm noticing how I have to teach them how to be savvy users and consumers of technology and media. And the onus, unfortunately, is really on us, right, to decide how we want to be used or be users of right. it all. Right. And uh, yeah, man, it's like great and horrible and scary all at the same time. You know, I just think that already we have to be totally on our toes about understanding what's real and not real in the media. And that's only going to get a million times more difficult because AI can make anything look real. 
um, you know, with like use with the AI generated graphics in particular are what kind of blow me away. So I don't know if that was your question, but well, I was gonna. Well, no, that's that. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily, but it made me. <laughs> I was gonna ask you earlier if you've heard of the AI tool that'll just generate a website. No, like uh, give it like a one word query and it'll just create a website. Really? <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I haven't actually used it, but I mean, you know, I. It's I yeah I. Yeah, based on the other stuff I've seen, it it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's... I mean, but see, that's interesting because. Uh, Technology is just constantly changing, right? So, um, and then, and then, like to circle back a little bit to the e-commerce story, we had all this head start, right? Because we had technology in our hands that most consumers, or maybe even developers, didn't use as much as we did, right? right. Or didn't understand as much. You as didn't we did. even invent anything. You were just using. The yeah, tools we were just using them kind of as fast as we could, right. right? And then everyone caught up to us, and we were in a position of needing to either change our business model a little bit to stay ahead of everybody else and capture, you know, eyeballs and clicks and consumers in a different way and change our service a little bit or, you know, do something a little different to keep pace with the pace we had been on. Mm. Um, or, you know, the other piece, the other option that we saw on the table was sell it to somebody who'd want to do that. Right. And the way we, the places we were in our personal lives and just the journey we had been on, it was, coming at least time for me personally to put it down because it was such a white knuckle ride. I mean, we were just, we just grew so fast and furiously and I had had two kids in that time and didn't really have a substantial maternity leave time to catch my breath. And I was like currently holding an infant on the day that I sort of realized that uh, we needed to do something really different or else the landscape was going to change dramatically in our business. And that's when I was like, I just think it's time to sell, you know, um, because, you know, there were, we needed to kind of like reinvent our whole tool set again, if right. we were gonna keep pace. Um, and I just didn't see that being, you know, you just have to make a choice. That's right. what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a good heads up decision. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. yeah. I think important to be able to be on the field playing the game, but also take taking a second to look around and see where all the players are and say, I'm not ready. I'm not cut out for this at this moment. Right. Like it's like the game has changed. I could do it, but I don't really want to. Yeah. Yeah. The game literally changed. And I was like, I wouldn't, I'm not playing the game today that I was playing when we started this business. Right. So, or I wouldn't be playing it if we did the pivot and you know, I don't think I want to learn a new game right now. Right. So, yeah. So did you guys, were you, did you have inventory were you guys doing the inventory management or did you hire that out? Right. Outsource that, that? By that point. So between the time <laughs> that we I swiveled my head and looked at the money, you know, on the wall in our little conference room to a one particular Black Friday where it was like we almost pulled an all nighter. Hmm. pickpacking and shipping, shipping orders. I mean, it was insane. Right. It was insanity. It was kind of like everyone's, what they would dream of was like their dream scenario, but it turns out when you live it, it's your worst nightmare. Right. And we, I was like, we will never do this again. Like we are not meant, we, this isn't actually even our strength, right? right? Like we're not, we're, we're nerds who sit at computers. Like why are we yeah. pickpacking and shipping orders? Like there's people who do this way better than us. And so that's when we learned about 3PL and, you know, outsourcing, um, fulfillment. Mm. So that we started shopping for fulfillment centers. Um, our inventory all ended up in Kansas in the middle of the country mm -hmm. and optimized. We found some incredible partners who 
are masters of their craft, you know, and how to how to optimize logistics for when you pull orders and how many times a day you pull orders in order to hit, you right. know, drop off and pick off times. And um, right. yeah. it's a whole All the thing. stuff that takes forever to yeah. figure out for each yeah. order. And, I mean, yeah. even the way you warehouse your product so that instead of going by skew numerically, you put them by um, turnover. Right. So it's like the hottest items are right. all right next to each other. Right. So you don't even make the person picking the item take extra steps down the aisle to right. get that bestseller. Right. Like they just thought of everything. Sure. Um, and some really fun trips we had to Kansas to like ooh and ah over the conveyor belts and the <laughs> truck bays and, you know, the loading docks. And we're like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. That sounds like an operation. Because how many companies do you think they were managing inventory for? They were managing a lot. Yeah. They were, I mean, and they were making, they were in their prime too, right? Like they were, right. you, we found that similar company to us who was like a few steps ahead and saw this whole e-com explosion happening and it was fun. And yeah. then Amazon kind of integrated your business model and that business model into one thing, right? Yeah. So Amazon was breathing down our neck pretty hot and heavy mm -hmm. and they if you even dabble in their ad platform and placing products on their site, you basically just hand over your playbook to Amazon, right? Cause they see everything you do and you don't even get to see your customer uh, information, right? Like right. you don't know where they came from. You're just fulfilling orders off of their platform and the rest is theirs. So we dabbled in that enough to know that that wasn't where we should be. And then just saw that like, them just chasing, chasing us down. And then, uh, our vendors started to realize that what we were doing was way more business than they were doing through their own channels. Right. So all the companies that we were selling jewelry, you know, like the artists and, um, the lines that we carried were kind of like, uh, we think we'd, we'd like that, you know, $2 million that you're selling of our product to be direct to consumer. So we can make double margin. Right. And we now understand how to do websites. So we'll take right, that piece. Right. right. And it was sad because we always kind of were like, well, we're the ones who brought you to the party. Sure. You know, like we're the ones who kind of showed you that online could be a profitable place for you to live. And unfortunately there was just nothing from that, not, nothing stopping them from saying, no, we'll do it ourselves. Sure. You know, yeah. If you didn't have, yeah. Yeah. If you didn't have an agreement or whatever. Right. Right. That's just, that's their decision to make. Um, and, and then in addition, they were a little bit more interested in going if, you know, online with people like Nordstrom or Amp or Bloomingdale's, right. Who have just inherently like a way larger base and platform. Right. So we were like, oh man. And there were definitely multiple ways we could have pivoted and stayed relevant and, um, you know, kept the, the band alive. Um, but it just would have been a lot of work, you know? It was a lot of work. So what what kind of business ended up buying that business? So it was actually one of the other companies in our warehouse. Oh, okay. So we called when we decided we were going to sell. The first phone call I made was to the CEO of our fulfillment partner mm. and saying like, hey, this is coming down the pipe. I know we're a big client of yours and this is what we're thinking of doing. You know, I just wanted to give you a heads up because if we don't sell, we're probably going to look at winding down. Right. So you should know. And he was like, oh, my God, I don't want you to wind down. I want you to you know, keep going. Let <laughs> me make some phone calls and see who I can find. Mm -hmm. And he hooked us up. No joke from the day that I called him. About 30 days later, we had sold the business to the person he recommended to us. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
it was super seamless because so much of it was the same, right? Like they, their clients right. were all thinking this, we we're all thinking the same things, right? Like we just need a product to sell and this is the formula we use to sell it. You know? So they were already doing the same thing and they just wanted to expand into your market. Yeah. And do you know if they're still, is it still operating? No. And unfortunately we came to the bargaining table saying, here's the business as it is now and it will not continue on as is right. unless you do you know, something different. Here's what we think okay. would be good. Would you basically, did they basically have to take on Amazon or at that point, was well, it even pre Amazon? So at the time, Amazon, and I think this might even still be true, true, but Amazon never could do anything personalized. And then meaning ads. Well, like, let's say or like recommendations, let's say the jewelry that you wanted to buy had your initials on it. Oh, I gotcha. like Amazon didn't have anything like that. Right. And the <clears> warehouse <throat> uh, that we were in, did do stuff like that. Like they had some little add, add on services where it's like, if someone bought this necklace, they had an engraver and they could engrave things. Right. Mm -hmm. So there were like a couple of things. I'm trying to think of like the other blue sky that existed at the time with Amazon, uh, that Amazon wouldn't touch. Right. They were interested in doing. And I was like, so, you know, think about personalization, um, think about subscription model where it's like jewelry of the month and, you know, surprise jewelry boxes or, you know, like all of those box subscriptions were sure. huge at the time. And that was actually their model. They had a, a box subscription company. And I was like, so just apply what you're doing to what we're doing. And that would reinvigorate and, you know, do, do that, add some personalization and then maybe add your own product line where you would have double margin and that would really diversify your base. And so those were kind of the, and I was like, I can even tell you the, pro the products you should make, right. you know, cause it would be based on what we're already selling, but we would do it ourselves. And it just, you know, unfortunately the pivot didn't happen for them. Mm -hmm. They just didn't do that stuff. Sounds like it, you needed some foresight to realize that today isn't, yeah, they might have been making money today, but it was it wasn't an endless. It wasn't going to happen. Like the the downfall, like the decline of the business, wasn't going to happen tomorrow, right? And they're like, "Well, it's a pretty awesome cash machine. Why would I mess with it?" Right. I was like, "Well, I, I, it's not going to be a cash machine forever. <laughs> I think you should, you know, yes." And they they instead of um instead of doing any of the the pivots, they just doubled down, and they were like, "We're just gonna we're just gonna." increase our relationship with all of the vendors so that they choose us. And they kind of tried to fight their way in to like stay put right. in the current landscape. And it, it just didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which isn't, I mean, sounds like pretty obvious in hindsight. <laughs> I mean, with that, they had to do something and if they didn't do something, you know, cause now that yeah. we've seen what Amazon's done, it's like, it, yeah. Yeah. Nearly impossible to fight with that. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. Interestingly, like there are still some like, I mean, I think a lot of people try and look outside of Amazon. I, I'm curious, actually, what your what your thoughts are on that of the ethics of like, do you support Amazon or do you try and go around Amazon when you can or do you care? Well, so I guess my thought on Amazon, it has taken me a while to kind of like heal from understanding how cannibalizing they can be, mm. you know? And so I, I have, um, my eyes wide open whenever I think about Amazon. Um, you just need to know who, what Amazon is, right. And what they can do for you and what they cannot do for you. So that being said, um, 
you probably weren't expecting this little tidbit, but I do have one other business, <laughs> um, which is a product that my husband and I invented together. And we do primarily sell it on Amazon. Um, it's a super random product and it's like a real, uh, the story is like its own little tangent, but long story short, it is a device that helps women who have to wear shapewear mm. go to the bathroom hmm. without taking their, all their shapewear off. Um, which can be a timely and uncomfortable process. So shapewear, like the corset type thing? Yeah, shapewear, like... like Spanx. So like pretty much like your bike shorts, but right. like, you know, like a swimsuit. It's kind of like a swimsuit, but like super um, tons of coverage, right? It's like trying to suck right. you in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I personally had to wear it because I had a surgery that required it as a compression garment for recovery, oh. right? And it was like, it was my reality day and night for five weeks. That was what my surgeon recommended to me. And, you know, I was like, this sucks. This is ridiculous. And there's like this little gusset that you're supposed to pee through as a girl, um, which girls don't pee through things very often. It's right. like a thing that like yeah. women do. And it didn't work, right? It was yeah. like a recipe for peeing on your Spanx. And, um, and I solved the problem using a kitchen funnel, mm. which I thought was like really embarrassing. And I was like disgusted by it. And then it was the same year that the NPR, How I Built This podcast launched. Mm. And their first guest was Sarah Blakely, who invented Spanx. Mm -hmm. And she is the youngest female self-made billionaire in the United States. And I had no idea who she was. I really hadn't even given th Spanx any of my time or consideration. And my husband was like, wait, what did you do today? And I was like, well, I was like wearing my shapewear and I peed on it. So I figured out how not to pee on it. But I had Googled how to pee in your shapewear and like everyone has the same problem. It's like a whole thing. And even Kim Kardashian, you know, pees on her shapewear and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he's a product designer. And he's like, listen, you know how to sell things online. I know how to make things. Why don't we make something specific for this mm. and sell it because I think a lot of people use shapewear. Right. So I, I wrote the business plan and he made the product and, um, we sold, we sell it through my web, our website, plux.com, but then I also sell it on Amazon and Amazon sales are, you know, our primary, our primary place. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I have going on for me on Amazon and the reason I'm willing to sell on Amazon and this is the answer to your question, is that I have a trademarked brand, hmm. right? So Amazon treats a trademarked brand differently from other brands. And I have way more say over what happens to my brand on Amazon than if you don't. Right. So if you're a third-party seller of another person's brand, you basically don't have very much say, sure. right? So the brands themselves do, but even still, then they're subject to a few other things, but because I only sell direct and from my website and then on Amazon, I'm able, able to manage those two channels without getting my wires crossed and having Amazon be upset with me for anything I'm doing on plex.com. And then, um, I just get a lot of, I just get a lot of traction. There's a lot of, there's a lot more people on Amazon than there is on my website. Right. right. So, and then do you have patents or, or. Right. So the patent piece, honestly, I, had a hard decision about what I was going to do with that. We had a provisionary, we had a provisional patent patent that um, expired and I renewed, but by the time it expired again, 
we were ineligible to apply for patent status mm. because we had been in the, because I basically tested my idea and it has been on the market. And there is a weird section of patent law that basically makes you ineligible right. to go after it after that. So, and also it's, it's really hard to, you know, my product is $29. So a patent can cost you know, upwards of 10, 15, $20,000. Mm-hmm. And I was like the return, and I'd already sunk quite a bit of money into the mold to make the product. Mm-hmm. And I was just recouping that investment roundabout when it was time to like double down again on the patent. Right. And I was like, I just don't necessarily feel like that's the right next use of my funds. So, so we didn't do it. And so are, are other people making similar things now and copying you or? No. No, I have no, I have nobody uh, coming after me. And in fact, you might even argue that like, that's a bad thing, right? Cause it's, it's like, it's a niche enough product that I just somehow people are letting me own that space. Right. Right. So that's yeah. interesting. So you don't even have to like fight this battle of making your brand the best or, or patents or anything. You just, right. right. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. It is an interesting thing. Um, We've had, um, we tried to get in touch with Spanx because that was my original thought is like, you should just buy me. You should buy this idea from me. Right. Um, and that didn't go anywhere. And they have an unsolicited ideas policy, which I think is also really important for entrepreneurs to know about. Um, there are brands who are open to ideas and, and like licensing them or buying them from consumers or the general public. And there are brands who are not. And the brands who are not like are, it's like an iron fortress. You know, because they never want to have the awkward situation somewhere down the road where they're selling a product that someone had the idea for and right. I told them about, but they weren't being compensated for. And that right. Kind of thing. Then they got to fight that battle. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, a dead end. And then, believe it or not, uh, when Kim Kardashian launched her shapewear line, Skims, she was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon promoting it. And they were playing a game called Show Me Your Phone. And he was like, show me your last Google search. And she had Googled, is shapewear with a pee hole better? Because she didn't put a pee hole in her, in her shapewear. And she was trying to figure out. And like I said, she has, she's notorious for being known for trying to pee in her spanks and failing. So she's kind of like this weird poster child for this. <laughs> and she shows him her phone. And the number one search result was my company mm. on the tonight show like right. with kim kardashian looking at it right and word got back to her that you know i'd love to talk to her about it and so indirectly i was texting with a friend of a friend who knows her mm. um about the, that and unfortunately she and Con- kanye were right in the middle of buying their ranch in wyoming and it didn't go anywhere but gotcha um, it did triple my business overnight to get that oh, wow. little bit of free publicity interesting yeah. and mm-hmm. now are you are you again using a, a third party to manage inventory and or you i know, guess with amazon to, do they just do it yeah so it is fulfilled by amazon okay yeah so that i mean that is convenient as well but you, you know? still have to manage the manufacturer yes i do and... still have to manage the manufacturer. yeah and we order like i've i've put everything in place on that business for it to be as like hands off as possible so everything is completely 
I mean, I touch it maybe three times a year, you know, and otherwise it just kind of runs itself. So there's, yeah. there's not too much updating to do. It's kind of <laughs> tried yeah. and true. <laughs> yeah. 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 The first couple of years I was super hands-on with it just to build up enough, you know, SEO and just right. so that I can rank number one for most search terms that I need to, um, and did, did some podcasts and did some fun stuff, you know, did, met, I ended up, it did meet, end up meeting Sarah Blakely and Guy Raz and I've done a bunch of neat stuff for it and with it, but, um, I don't know. It's just a side project. It's yeah. not my main hustle. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but you also have a couple other side projects, right? You also have the Gorge Women in Business. Yes. Yeah. Gorge Women in Business. So that is a great, I mean, I wouldn't call it a side hustle necessarily because it's more like a community give back project. Right. Um, cause we are working on our 5013 C status mm -hmm. and really taking it from what was just a, a project that I literally, uh, launched on a whim in the dark depths of November, 2018, you know, and had a lunch and just said, Hey, this is, let's get together, you know, gorge women in business, you know, we'll have a couple speakers and we'll do some networking fast forward to now where it's, um, it's a Facebook group that's, you know, verging in on 800 members and, um, we've done a bunch of, you know, in-person events and networking and yeah, becoming a 501c3 so that it's not just me, uh, it's coming, it's becoming a more of a, we, you know, just really cool. what is the policy on men are men allowed to join? <laughs> we do have some men in the group and we have some uh, non-binary folks as well. Um, and the, you know, Certainly not exclusive, exclusive to men or exclusive to women and exclusive of men. Um, the, the, the reason I remember saying it's going to be gorge women in business is because I thought if it's just gorge everyone in business, you know, what, yeah. what that's just more than I can bite off. So, um, I also do think there's a, a special, um, space created when women are together because of the, some of the unique challenges that we've faced in business, whether it be actual, you know, inequality, things that have just kind of been um, insidious and inherent in the business culture, or whether it's just full on imposter syndrome that is harder to admit is present when you're trying to posture or be strong um, and authoritative, you know, in the presence of other genders. So, right. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's really cool because it's like, we're making a space that's has these guidelines for respect or in all the, the way that you want things to be. But then you're still, if you're saying that men can still come, but like everyone else, they have to abide by these guidelines or whatever. Yeah. Then that, I think that's cool. Cause it's like, uh, it's, it's supportive, right? It's, it's not exclusive. It's, it's supportive of something and it's not, it's not suppressing anything. Right. 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 No, exactly. It's not like down with the men. <laughs> right. It's yeah. It's just up with the women. Great. Yeah. 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 Um, and there are some business challenges that are, you know, pretty, uh, unique to women in business too. So that's a yeah. great time to kind of like shine a light on those, um, to the audience that's most interested in it. So, and yeah. actually I think it's probably really valuable for men to learn from that group because there's so much potential and untapped potential, that for so many reasons over the years hasn't been, hasn't seen its full potential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for men to learn what's going on there is also like really mutually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm like, I always have to pause when I'm like, um, 
my whole thing is inclusivity. I love having like the more the merrier, everyone belongs here. Um, but there are some really interesting stats that support why more support is needed for women in business. You know, when you, especially when you look at the venture capital funds that are directed towards women-owned business versus non-women-owned businesses, you know, it's only like 2% of venture capital goes towards women-owned businesses. Hmm. And yet there's another stat that shows that um, women-led businesses are, you know, I can't remember, it's like X times more successful. Right. Right. So there's this like gap in opportunities given, but then results gotten we, that we get from, you know, women in business. And I think the more we shine a light on that, like it is an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for all genders to consider, you know, elevating and promoting women in business because of their capabilities. And it's also an opportunity for women to feel empowered and ready to take on the, the challenge. Right. Because there are other women who are doing it and doing it very successfully. So, you know, that makes it possible for you as well. Right. And I wonder, I wonder how much of it is not like how many, how many women want to start a business or want are seeking venture capital and can't find it. Cause I, th I like the, I don't know the stat, but every, the stat that you mentioned that women are more successful, but like today there, I had two business cards from, uh, of two people at a company that I was going to do like a sales call to basically. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I definitely, one was man, one was woman. And I was mm -hmm. like, I'm definitely going to choose the woman because there's so much more logical, like just reasonable and human, like on, like I'd, I'll way rather take my chances with a woman than with a man. <laughs> and I don't like, it's. Was that just a gut instinct or was it something personal? Well, I didn't meet them. Oh, you didn't? Okay. I, meet, I met them. and But just in general, I, th I think, um, at least in, in engineering and, and business development people in engineering, oftentimes the guys are just just so much ego and they, they don't listen, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. I actually have value to bring to them. Mm -hmm. And I think in general, women are way better at listening than men. So... Yeah. That was kind of why I took. Yeah, yeah, no, there are. I mean, it's it's hard to. I mean, it, there are those stereotypes, right? And I think that in business, though, the loudest voice is usually listened to. Mm. You know, and that's a tough one because uh, women don't typically operate that way, right? And so just just you know acknowledging that and then pointing it out. And that's like half the battle, right? Admitting we have the problem and then what to do about it comes next. Um, the other thing I just like to do is remind people and encourage them, right? Like it's just sometimes it takes a little bit of reminding that this is the potential that you have. This is completely doable by you. Just because you don't know a lot of women who've crossed the million dollar mark in business or maybe the $10 million mark, $10 million mark in business or whatever it is you're going for doesn't mean it shouldn't be you. You know, and that, that alone, I think, is one of the drums that I beat the most. It's just like, why not you? Why not your business? Are you thinking big enough? Why are you thinking small? Like, what is that resistance? Like, where, why, why are you not? Because I think, you know, in general, men are not operating underneath that limit, right? There's just not that thought that like, it wouldn't be me. Right. So it's just that kind of like, just the encouragement, I think goes a long, long way. And do you feel like a lot of women have the, the desire? It's just not as 
is it a lack of self-belief? Like they have the desire, but they don't think it's possible kind of a thing. Yeah. And I, and I think they don't see it modeled enough. Right. So it's just like, uh, well, why would that, why should I even, why should, why would that be my goal? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying everyone needs to have a million dollar business by any means, but I also see a lot of our businesses in Gorge Women in Business are like, you know, they're like twenty to forty thousand dollar a year businesses. Right. And I just I just have to wonder why. You know, and is it because we like where is the hold up here? Is it a lack of time, money, effort, viable skill? Is it a lack of knowledge? Is it just that we don't remind you to keep going and go further with this. And when you say 40,000, is that gross revenue or? Yeah, that's revenue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a hard place to live. Yeah. Yes. Especially in this town. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is not, that is not barely supporting you. Right. And it, and, it, and it's, I am not shaming a business that makes that kind of revenue at all. I'm just saying you have something here and and reminding people that like there is a lot of opportunity and ways for you to grow. And, and sometimes it's probably, I mean, sometimes there's ways to grow, but sometimes it's just, yeah, you're at the limit. And if you want something else, maybe you should pivot. Right? Sure. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. It would be, it, I'm sure, you know, like, like businesses are, are unique. So we would have to evaluate each one on a case by case basis. And right. there's some things that are hard to scale, right? Like if you're a massage therapist, there are so many hours in the day and days in the week that you can personally give someone a massage, right? right? Like that, that model may not scale infinitely. Um, so there's just some realities around, you know, certain professions or ways that you're running that profession. Um, but yeah, I just, I guess, you know, I do feel like one of my superpowers is the ability to think big and think past obstacles or limits and wonder about how you could run something to, you know, reach an ultimate goal, whatever that may be. And I, and I typically, you know, I just kind of go there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's one thing that I, you know, I just like to share and make sure people know that you don't have to, you don't have to settle for this, you know, if this is where, if you'd rather go further. Hmm. What do you, what do you think makes you think that way? Well, I guess, I don't know, somewhere it must've been in my early entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, and I, also, I honestly think like my business partner and I, we had some like lightning in a bottle and came into business, you know, in 2003 when sky kind of was the limit. You know, I mean, everything was just booming. Like we had just come into a, a, a dot-com crash, but there was right. just so much infinite potential yeah. with what you could do with the web, mm -hmm. right? And we were kind of going from web 1.0 to web 2.0. And it was just, I just, yeah, I, it probably is something in those nascent years of just like, no, man, if you dream it, they will come. Like you can, you can do it. You can mm -hmm. do it. Like find a way. And that was the other thing is that nobody knew how to do what we were doing. Nobody knew how to do the things. We were all just figuring it out as we went. You would land a project having no idea how you were going to do it. And then you would just figure it out. Right. Because they couldn't hire anybody else. There wasn't like the person who knew and the person who didn't know. It was all no one knew how to do it. <laughs> so there's probably something in there just that wired me that way. Mm. Yeah. And do you, do you ever think about whether or not like 
like because i i'm also a dreamer and i i dream a lot but i've also realized that there's no matter what there's work along the way and i've realized that whether or not that is what i want to do with my life is as important as if i want to be at the end yeah right yeah. and i don't know if you've and i think sometimes that's a barrier and holds me back but it's also just like i want to enjoy my young healthy body while it's young and healthy and it's it's this balance of dreaming big but also dr being alive today and yeah. I, don't, I don't know yeah. if you think about that much but it's it's kind of been a paradigm shift for me where i'm i'm trying to live my life as if i'm retired and do what i want to do as opposed to just just build that like just success in the future right yeah be successful today yes, yes. which is it's hard because you have to be you have to put in work and think forward but i don't know if that Make, mm -hmm. framework makes any sense to you or oh yeah i mean i've always described myself as a lifestyle entrepreneur mm. so i do the work so that i can live right it's not i'm living to work right yeah as passionate and driven and excited and businessy as i am it you know is completely different i remember i would drive in to portland to do networking right and meet with all the other web development agencies there they're all fancy and like wearing business clothes like at network conferences yeah like at the stuff. portland business journal events and things like that those were like some of the primary things we were doing and yeah or like seo conferences which portland is a great resource for, resource for and this one guy said to me you live in the gorge and I was like, yes, it is so awesome. I mean, you can do this work from anywhere. And so I'm able to just, you know, second I'm done, I can hop on my bike and or go down to the river and, you know, go windsurfing or whatever it is. And on the, you know, on the days where I feel like I need to go come networking, I do, I drive out here. And he's like, wouldn't you rather have it the other way around and just go out there on the weekends so that you can do your work here all week with everybody else? And I was just like, okay, this is, this is the difference between you and me. No, <laughs> no, I would rather have five days a week of easy recreation. And, you know, like I would seven days a week of that yeah. and I'll come out here when, you know, when, and if I feel the need, um, that forever, I, I was like, there's a difference between me and somebody who's willing to maybe do a more typical startup grind. Mm. Right. Like, cause it's true. I think what you said is, is true. You're really not guaranteed tomorrow. You're really not, you know? And so I try to remember that like all of these things that I have on my list of things to do today matter a certain amount, but ultimately I need to feel like I lived my life properly today. Right. Um, and I really truly like that's such a mindset thing, you know, and it has like been something that I have had to be disciplined about to remember because it's really hard when you have a client who's mad or disappointed or a project that's late or overwhelming or wrong or needs work and attention to, to tell yourself that that's all that matters right now. And then it just takes, you know, enough of those to kind of come and go in your life to realize that that's actually just the noise mm -hmm. and that everything else is what really matters. Are you, are you familiar with that reminds me of extreme ownership? Are you, are you no. familiar with that term? No, it's just like the second, like just, take ownership of all well of all of it but especially the failure mm -hmm. right so if you have a, a customer that's mad just take all the responsibility and the blame up front 
And if you can't do anything about it, so be it or whatever you can, mm -hmm. you, you set the expectation low when you do that. And mm -hmm. then it's just, yeah, sorry. That's, yeah. you know, it's my fault, but that's what it is. Yeah. And I have to go live my life or whatever it is. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, you take the brunt of it up front as opposed to being like, Oh no, it'll be okay. And then you, and then you extend it out and you're thinking about it, even though you're not working on it, maybe you're thinking about it to do it tomorrow. And then you still have this thing looming over you. Like reminds me of this, this vendor we have that every time he's late, like twice as takes like twice as long to as the quoted lead time to give us these parts that are super critical. And I'll ask him like every week or two weeks and he's never tells the truth or I don't know what or maybe he's thinking. Doesn't know the truth. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's it. So I, I try and like the second I know that we're going to be late delivering something, I try and tell someone immediately Yeah, and even give a little overtime because it's just, it's awful when you, when you extend these things out and then. Yeah. The under promise and over deliver is where, yeah, it feels good to live. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is just kind of that stoicism or maybe even like the version, you know, of the serenity prayer where it's like control what you can control. Right. Control the controllables. And right. then so much else is not yours to do anything about. Um, and I think having kids snapped that into focus yet again for me, because it is, there's nothing like that experience to remind you that life goes by at a, an extremely rapid pace. Mm. And you only get today once. And you only get that childhood of theirs. They only turn one once. They only turn two once. They only turn three once. You know, like those are all one time events. Right. And if you miss it, you miss it. It's gone. There's no go back. There's no going back to redo that. So you got to choose. Is it, what is it? What are you here for? You know? Um, so yeah, I, I think I like, I am a slightly different uh, makeup of, yeah. Like I don't belong in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I've never been, but I don't think I do either. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm curious if you, what, what industry do you think will grow in Hood River in the next say 20 years or is there one because i i think you mentioned this when we chatted before that there's so much talent here mm -hmm. and 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 you said so many entrepreneurs and i think in my industry we're just in different industries so yeah. it's easier to be an entrepreneur in like in the digital space because you don't depend as much on being physically tied to people mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm, I like I value so much the fact that this small town has an economy and in my industry, otherwise I probably wouldn't live here. Yeah. So I'm just curious if if there's any industry or 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 even just kind of like growth of networking for like Gorge Women in mm -hmm. Business for digital industry, even though it's not really physically here, but <clears throat> If there's networking and people to build each other up, then they right. might as well be here. Right. Well, you know, let's let me speak in broad strokes to get my answer started for you because <laughs> I don't really know. Um, you know, I, personally, I found like you know, like you said, technology works really well here because you can do much of that from anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So things that rely on being digitally connected to one another mm -hmm. definitely work really well in the gorge. Um, the interesting thing is that I think. Conversely to that, if you need a lot of real estate because of the price of real estate here in the gorge, it's not going to be something that's very doable or viable. So for example, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a mover come here and start a warehouse and, you know, like have need tons of square feet to operate. 
uh, that's going to be expensive. Um, I, I do think that what we're going to, I think entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit is like entrenched here. I, I, I have personally been the recipient of that spirit mm -hmm. and it has definitely helped me be that big thinker that I am because, you know, when you casually mention to somebody you're starting a business here, you get so much positive feedback and support mm -hmm. and encouragement. Whereas, um, there's a lot of people who would coach you not to tell people you're starting a business for fear that people will try to talk you out of it hmm. in other circles, right? That's actually a Sarah Blakely thing. She didn't tell people she was starting Spanx for two years mm. because she didn't want to hear from people who were trying to protect her from her own potential failure. Right. And that just doesn't happen here. <clears throat> no one's like, oh my God, you're probably going to fail. You know, you just don't, you don't really run into that. At least I didn't. And I uh, haven't with the gorgeous women in business, you know, there's just a, such a supportive atmosphere. So, you know, I, I, one of the things that I want to do that's in our mission for that group is to bring a large scale networking conference to the gorge and have it be, a, you know, an off season, like a shoulder season, you know, couple of business days to mm -hmm. help, you know, help support the tourism that already is here. I don't think tourism is going away. Um, but You're it's, saying off season for Hood River, yes. Like when there's not as many people in town, yeah. Then no November, right? March, you know, like those times of year where we need heads and beds, right? Um, and put us on the map in terms of thought leadership for entrepreneurs, right. entrepreneurship. I think there's an opportunity for that. You know, I know um, Leith Gaines here in town and Story Gorge are starting a, a film festival here. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and they're similar ideas, like an off-season weekend, you know, bringing people here to uh, commemorate and understand our changing planet. So there's like that eco component. We're such we're in such a unique place as far as um, you know climate goes. We're so connected to our land and our you know sense of place. Mm -hmm. So there's I think opportunity there. Um, the other thing that I think that we have a ton of opportunity for still, and we have a lot of already is outdoor brand development. And, you know, when we look at companies, unfortunately, decline having left, but companies that are still here, like Slingshot, um, Northwave, you know, just our, our wind sports, mm -hmm. um, folks, I don't think we need to stop at wind sports. I think there's a big opportunity to have, um, like an extension of like OHSU or OSU, I guess it's not HSU, but oh, I think OSU has an outdoor brands um, program, right? Like how to, yeah, how to become, um, you know, involved in, in that kind of a um, segment of the economy. And that could be, I mean, what a better place to be inspired by, right? You're surrounded by recreation. So mm -hmm. I think that would be an opportunity. My hope would be that we don't get taken over by any one economy. Right. Um, because I think while aerospace is a really great one that we have, um, you know, it's super volatile with respects to war and, and military and economy in general. So to, you know, and this, this would be my advice to any business is to have a good diversification. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I think it, uh, yeah, I, I'd agree with, with all of that. And I think it's, I guess I'm curious what, if you think that the people in Gorge Women in Business are heading in that direction, or if it 
or if there's kind of a course correction that needs that you're trying to inspire or is that not really the agenda? No. Yeah. I definitely don't have any agenda around what businesses we should be promoting or growing. But if, but if say there's like, Hey, a hundred people with businesses and a, a certain type of business that's not doing well, you're like, Hey guys, like, you know, none of their, the market's way oversaturated and none of you are doing well. I, I don't know if there's any of that where it's kind of trends and it's like, right. okay, we need a little more of this and a little less of that. Or Yeah, no, I, I don't quite have the puppet strings um, where I would be so bold as to, you know, maybe even suggest that. Um, so I don't quite have that component, but what I do like to do is when people ask for help or see an opportunity for growth is do everything I can to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can't, I have personally limited, uh, time resources, but how, like, what else is there? Do you need, like, did you, do you know that, about the SBDC? Do you know about McHead? Do you know about, you know, the support we have from local banks that will lend to you? Do you know how to get bank lending? Mm-hmm. You know, what, do you know how to write the business plan for that? You know, what, what are the tools that you need? Um, because I can't, I don't want to personally be responsible for running one else's business, but I would love to be as supportive as I can for them to, you know, take that ball and run with it. Right. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Cool. Well, I, I think that's probably a good place to bring it to an end. I'm, <laughs> awesome. I'm, uh, yeah, so glad you came on because this, this was, yeah, for not, for not having chatted very much beforehand, I think I love the way you think it's, it's very like thinking at a high level and not worrying about the small problems along the way. And, you know, just having that confidence of, yeah, we can figure out, identify the the biggest potential issues, but we can figure it out and having that dream. I think we need more, more of that, more dreamers and, and yeah. So think big. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for the book. And I'm excited to, to keep digging through it. Cause it's already a game changer. Awesome. Yeah. No, thanks for the conversation. It's fun to get to, to think about our community and, and, uh, talk about business. It's my favorite topic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you're welcome back anytime. So cool. All right. Thanks, Sean. Thank you.